fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him we feast on all of those glorious blessings. What a wonderful joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we prepare to dig into His Word and hear from heaven. Let's pray. Father, it is always our privilege as Your people to gather together as a church, to worship, to sing praises, to hear from the Scripture. It's our joy to fellowship together and take the Lord's Supper together and take a fellowship, eat a fellowship meal together. It's our joy to serve one another in the name of Christ. We're just so thankful for the glorious privilege that You've given to us as Your people. We're thankful to be a part of the local church. We know that Christ is building His church and the gates of Hades will not be able to come against it, will not prevail against it. The church will continue unabated until the return of our Savior and we rejoice in that. And we thank You for the truth that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Where we know that in this life there's many afflictions. Paul told a group of believers that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through many afflictions. Jesus promised that we will have tribulation in this world. Jesus set the pattern for us. First for Him came suffering and then came glory. And so it is for us. And we know that momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We know that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us at the return of our Savior. And so we look forward to that with confident expectation. We rejoice even in our suffering and in our trials now, knowing that you're using it to test our faith, to strengthen our faith, to mature our faith, and that you will meet us in these afflictions and comfort our hearts. And we're thankful that all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Often, Lord, we break our promises. Often, our word is not sure. It's not faithfully carried out, but that's not the case with you. You're not a frivolous God, a flippant God, a God who makes promises that He can't keep. You're a God who has no ability to lie. With God, it's impossible to lie. You're a God who is truth itself and the source of truth. And so all of your promises have been fulfilled in Christ. He is the true Israel, the faithful Israel, where the covenant blessings of God are brought to fulfillment. And through our union with Him, we're grafted in to those covenant promises. And in that, we rejoice. So we thank You for our salvation. We thank You for Your Word as now as we prepare to open the Word of God, as we prepare to seek Your face in the Scripture. We pray as we always do that You would forgive our sins and give us repentant hearts, that we might put off all wickedness that remains and receive the Word implanted, which is able to save our souls, that we would hunger for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it we might grow in respect to our salvation, and that You would help us to understand these glorious heavenly truths for our sanctification and the praise of Your name. To that end, we pray all of these things. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. As we continue to work our way through John's first letter. And uh, this morning we're going to finish looking at a passage that has dominated our attention for the last uh, few weeks or so now. And that is verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. By now, you should know that John wrote this letter from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, And he wrote the letter as a series of tests by which believers can distinguish between true Christianity and false Christianity. A series of tests by which uh, one may determine whether or not he's a true Christian. A series of tests by which we can determine if we are truly saved. That's John's theme. 1 John 5.13, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's theme in his first epistle is Christian assurance. He wrote his gospel to lead people to faith. John chapter 20, he says, I've written these things so that you may believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have eternal life. He wrote that as an evangelistic book. He wrote his letter to believers as a book of assurance, to provide believers with assurance. And you should also know by now that there are three tests that John repeats over and over again by which believers may come to have this assurance. 
Those three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Doctrinal test, moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth doctrinally, they obey the truth morally, and they love in truth socially. They believe the truth about God, the truth about Christ, the truth about the Gospel. They obey the law of God, and they love others and serve them sacrificially. Those are the marks of a true believer. And we've been considering the moral test now for several weeks, as we've been very uh, deep in the passage set before us this morning. And we're going to continue to consider that moral test as we work our way through these verses. So 1 John chapter 3, let me read the passage to you yet again, starting in verse 4. 1 John 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins, no one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God." By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Last week I told you that there were two major battles that the early church fought against. The first one was legalism, battle against legalism. The second is the battle against antinomianism, legalism and antinomianism. Legalism asserts that salvation is by faith and works. Faith in law, faith in ceremonies. We see that today in the Roman Catholic Church and in many other false forms of Christianity. But legalism says to be saved, you not only have to believe, but you have to do certain activities, go through certain ceremonies and rites and works to earn enough merit to enter into the kingdom. Legalism is basically synergistic. You work together with God to earn your way to heaven. That's the lie of legalism. Antinomianism, on the other hand, is the opposite extreme. Antinomianism says you can have assurance of salvation and live like the devil. All you have to do is simply intellectually agree with gospel truth. All you have to do is profess faith in the truth, and as long as you do that, your practice doesn't matter. You can live any way you want, live like the devil himself, and yet have assurance of your salvation. That is the lie of antinomianism. Legalism and antinomianism. Both of these positions are wrong, both of these positions are unbiblical, and both of these positions still exist today. They exist today. And it is antinomianism that pervades much of evangelical Christianity to the present hour. The lie is that all you have to do to be saved is pray a prayer, sign a card, raise your hand, walk to the front of a church, accept Christ into your heart, quote-unquote, make a decision for Jesus. As long as you've done that, it doesn't matter how you live your life. You can have assurance of salvation while living in constant rebellion against the God you claim to love. Some of them even go so far as to say you can totally renounce your faith after your initial profession. You could go back to the world and become an atheist and yet you're still going to heaven with absolute assurance because you made a decision to follow Jesus. The way you live your life doesn't matter. You could live like the demons in hell and have confidence in your salvation. You could also call this libertinism or uh, cheap grace. You could call it easy believism. That's what dominates our culture today. Dominates. Our culture. It is the lie, it is the teaching that promotes God's grace as a license to sin. It promotes God's grace as a license to sin. That's how Jude referred to it in his letter in verse 4. Listen to what he says there in Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is exactly what libertines do. That's what antinomians do, false teachers do. They turn God's grace into a license to sin. And in doing so, they practically deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You might profess Him as Lord, but if you're not living in obedience to Him, you are practically denying the Lordship of Christ, and therefore their condemnation, he says, is marked out. Romans 3, Paul says, anyone who says this, let us do evil that good may come. Paul says their condemnation is just. The idea that I can live in evil, do evil, but I can be saved. Good will come out of it. Their condemnation is just. The heretics of Asia Minor, by the way, were purveying this very lie. They were teaching that because my body is evil and spirit is good, what I do with my body doesn't matter. I'll claim to be without sin because my spirit is pure, but I'll indulge in sin simultaneously and yet have assurance of my salvation. John says, absolutely not. No way. No way. In fact, John's main point here is that true Christians cannot live in sin. If you're taking notes, that's something to write down. John's theme is that true Christians cannot live in sin. Verse 6 says, No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Verse 8 adds, The one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 9, No one who is born of God practices sin, and he cannot sin. John holds back no punches. Very black and white, straightforward truth. True Christians cannot live in sin as the habitual course and pattern of their life. As I've already said, verse 10 is really the key to the whole passage. There John says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The true believer, the true child of God, is marked by the practice of righteousness. Negatively, he does not practice sin. Positively, he does practice righteousness. That is the mark that distinguishes God's children from Satan's children. God's children from Satan's children. So true Christians cannot live in sin. And in this text, John is going to provide us four reasons for that. Four reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at the first two. This morning, we'll go ahead and wrap up by considering the last two. So just by way of review, the first reason we saw that true Christians cannot live in sin is because sin is contrary to the law of Christ. Sin is contrary to the law of Christ. We saw that in verse 4. Look there, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. It is the breaking of God's holy law. It is a violation of His holy standards, a deviation from His holy will. Sin is not, as I've said before, it's not a mistake, it's not oopsie-daisy, it's not, oh, I did wrong, but God knows my heart. Sin is rebellion against the high King of heaven, and it is a violation of His law. And to practice sin is to live like a practical atheist. To live in sin is to live like a practical atheist. Because it is to live as if though there is no law, and therefore like there's no God who gave the law. It's to live like I'm God, I'm the law, I can do whatever I want. It's to live like a practical atheist. Christians cannot live that way because God has written the law on the hearts of His people so that true believers know that law and they love that law. And by the work of the Spirit, they habitually practice obedience to that law. So true Christians cannot live in sin because it is contrary to the law of Christ. But secondly, still by way of review, sin is not only contrary to the law of Christ, but it's also contrary to the work of Christ. Sin is contrary to the work of Christ. In verse 5, John says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Christ came into the world via virgin birth, incarnation, and He came into the world to take away sins, to die on the cross Not only to take away the penalty for sin, but in doing so, to destroy the power of sin. To liberate us from the dominion of iniquity. 
John puts it another way in verse 8. Look there at verse 8. There he says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came into the world as a man, partook of our flesh, died on the cross, and He did it to destroy the devil. He did it to loosen the grip that sin and Satan had on His people. So Christians no longer live in a form of slavery to Satan. They live in slavery to God and righteousness. Which means then, to live in sin as a professing Christian is to nullify the cross. It is to cancel the cross. It is to say that didn't work. That was not effective. That was not enough. What hypocrisy it is to say Christ came to take away my sins. Oh, the very sins I live in every day in love and indulge in. That is utter hypocrisy. True Christians cannot live in sin because sin is contrary to the work of Christ. His work dethroned sin, destroyed the power of Satan, he crushed the head of the serpent, so believers are now freed from his power. But now there are two more reasons that John provides us this morning uh, for the reasons that true Christians cannot live in sin, and we'll look at those. Those will be the focus of our consideration and the rest of our time this morning. So number three, number three, true Christians cannot live in sin because sin is contrary to our union with Christ. Sin is contrary to our union with Christ. Look at the end of verse 5. John says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. He is a sufficient Savior because He is a sinless Savior. He's a sufficient substitute because He's a sinless substitute. There is no sin in Him at all. No original sin, nor actual sin. Jesus is the sinless one. We know that He was born of a virgin. He was not born of through ordinary generation like we are. When we're born, we have two parents that come together, and through the union of two parents, we are the product. We are the result. That wasn't the case with Jesus. Jesus was born miraculously through the Virgin Mary. And due to that virgin birth, the corruption of Adam's nature did not pass on to him like it does to all of Adam's ordinary descendants, those who come from him through ordinary generation. We are born in sin. Adam's corrupt nature is transmitted to us. That was not the case for Christ. Jesus was not born in sin. He did not possess a sinful nature. Nor did He commit any sin of His own because He is the sinless one. Sinless in word, thought, Indeed, His sinlessness is attested to all throughout Scripture. We've considered it before, even in 1 John. For instance, in Luke chapter 23, we know the story. Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and He's in between two criminals. And both criminals initially are hurling insults at Him. But Luke tells us that one of them eventually repents. And while the other continues to insult Christ and mock Him, the other criminal responds like this. He says, We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even the thief on the cross recognized the sinlessness of Christ. He had done nothing wrong, committed no crime, no sin. He was sinless. John eight, John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus asked the Pharisees, Which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? None of them could do it. They couldn't do it. Even when they gave testimony against Him at His trial, there was inconsistent testimony because no charge leveled against Him could stick. He was innocent. He was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we, yet without sin. Without sin. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53 verse 9, a wonderful prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. And he says... Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. He was sinless. That's why 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ gave Himself for our sins, the just for the unjust. A perfect, sinless substitute who had no sin. So Christ then is a sinless Savior. Now this has massive ramifications. Massive ramifications. 
One ramification to the sinlessness of Christ is that He was actually qualified to be our Savior. He was qualified to be our Savior. I cannot die for your sins. A priest, a pope, a, a, a bishop, none of these people can die for your sins. Why? Because all of us have our own sin for which we deserve to die. Jesus, on the other hand, could die for sinners because He was a perfect, sinless Savior. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be without blemish. Why? Was God really concerned with lambs and bulls and goats? No, they pointed to the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who was fit and qualified to take away sin. He had to be sinless. And since He had no sins of His own for which to die, He could be a perfect substitute that would die for us. So that's one implication to the sinlessness of Christ. Because He's sinless, He's sufficient. But there's another implication that John points out here, and that's in verse 6. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in Him sins. There's you an implication. If Christ is sinless, no one can be in a saving relationship, a saving union with a sinless Savior and go on living in sin. No one can be in a saving relationship with a sinless Savior and go on living in sin. Just as light dispels darkness, sinless Savior dispels the sin of the lives of those who truly belong to Him. John really said that back in chapter 1. Go to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. We are familiar with what John said back here. Starting in verse 5, he says, God is light. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is righteous and true. In Him there is no sin or falsehood at all. Therefore, verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is no way you can be in the light and walk in the darkness. And there is no way you can be in fellowship with a sinless Savior and walk in that sin. A sinless Savior dispels sin in the lives of those who belong to Him. Back to chapter 3 now. So John says, no one who abides in Him sins. Again, this is the present tense. It denotes continuous action. The idea is that no one can, who's a true believer can go on in habitual sin as the pattern and course of his life. No one can live in sin. John is not saying that Christians do not ever sin. Our own experience tells us that. We all sin enough by the time we make it to church on Sunday morning that we deserve judgment. So we sin. Christians sin. John knew that. John affirmed that back in chapter 1, verse 8. What does he say there? If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. If you claim to be without sin, you're self-deceived. In fact, in chapter 1, John affirmed that true believers are characterized by confession of sin. And they receive constant forgiveness because they're always confessing. It's the false teachers who denied the reality of sin, not John, not true Christians. John's not saying we never sin. John is saying that Christians don't live in sin. We do sin, but we don't live in it. It's an issue of abiding then. It's an issue of abiding. John says, no one who abides in him sins. That word abides there, the Greek word meno, we've seen it before. John used it back in chapter 2, verses 24 to 28. Jesus elaborates on it in John 15, 1-11. And He gives there an agricultural analogy. We abide in Christ like a branch abides in a vine. A branch has no life unless it is connected to the vine, the source of life and sustenance. We have no life lest we're connected to Christ and in union with Him. And in that union, we derive His life from Him, which is a life of holiness. So no one then can be savingly connected to Christ without bearing fruit, as Jesus would say, without living in righteousness. The word ameno then, the word abide, it means to remain, to stay, to continue. It denotes both perseverance and union. Perseverance and union. Believers are those who continue in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In a saving union with Him. 
And no one can be in that union while going on in sin. You cannot remain in Christ and remain in sin. You cannot continue in Christ and continue in sin. The two are mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. So to know Christ then is to be changed by Christ. To know Him is to be changed by Him. Titus 1.15 says, They profess to know God with their mouth, but by their works they deny Him. They deny Him. If someone says he knows God, if someone says he's in abiding in Christ, but his life is not changed, then you know that profession of faith is an empty profession, and he's not a possessor, he's a false professor. John, by the way, is so certain about this that he goes on to say in verse 6, No one who sins has seen him or knows him. He stated it positively. No one who knows him goes on in sin. Now he states it negatively. Anyone who sins doesn't know him. Anyone who sins has never seen him or known him. What does it mean then to see him? What does it mean to see him? Have we seen the physical Christ? With the eyes of our heads? John used that word see back in chapter 1. The word horao means to perceive by personal experience. There it referred to the apostles' experience. They had seen the real risen Christ. They had touched Him with their hands and seen Him, seen him with their eyes. That's not the case for us. Surely no one here this morning would profess to have seen the risen Christ physically. But we've seen Him, if we're Christians, spiritually. We've seen Him spiritually. And I've told you before that the whole of our salvation is about seeing Christ. It's all about seeing Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul makes it crystal clear that unbelievers are blinded to the glory of Christ and to the truth of the Gospel. There he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's the case for an unconverted person. His eyes are blinded. But at conversion, the blinders come off. The lights come on. Our eyes are opened and we see Him. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says this, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is conversion. We're like Paul on the road to Damascus, blind to the glory of Christ. Then we see His glory, the blinders come off, and we see Him as glorious. As glorious. There was a time, if you're a Christian, there was a time in your life, you may not remember it, but there was a time in your life that you hated Christ. You despised Him. You were indifferent to Him. You had no concern for Him. But at salvation, if you're a believer, your eyes were open and now you delight in Him. You can say with the Apostle Paul, I count all rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Sin loses its appeal when Christ becomes glorious in the eyes and hearts of His people. So it is an issue of love then. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? Because our heart loves it. So what dispels sin? We come to know and love Christ. And out of a love for Christ, sin begins to decrease in our lives. So this beholding Christ then, this seeing Christ, has a sanctifying effect on the way we live our life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, as you see Christ, you become like Christ. As you see Him, you become like Him. Piper says, beholding is becoming. Beholding is becoming. And those who have seen Him truly, savingly, they're not content with one look. They want to gaze continuously at Him. And as we do that in the Bible, as we behold the glory of Christ in the Bible, in the lives of His people, through the sacraments on the Lord's Day, through singing hymns that are theologically sound, as we see His glory through those means of grace, His grace increases in our hearts and sin decreases. So there's a sanctifying effect. 
Of course, we saw back in verse 2 that one day when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That's our hope. We're going to see Christ in His perfect glory at the end and we're going to be made perfectly like Him. But now, as we gaze at Him, we become progressively like Him. So seeing Christ makes us like Christ. The logical conclusion then is this. If you are not becoming like Christ, if your life is not changed, you've never seen Him. Anyone who goes on living in sin has never savingly seen Christ with the eyes of his heart and with the eye of true faith. That person is still blinded to the glory of Christ. In 3 John verse 11, the Apostle put it this way, very simple, the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God. doesn't get any simpler than that. You know what one of the problems in our culture and in the church today is? There are many people sitting in church pews who profess Christ, but have never seen Him. Never seen Him. That's why they can't live differently. That's why all of their futile legalistic efforts to do better, to clean themselves up, to be more moral, it never works. Because sanctification is not just about behavior. It's about seeing Him and loving Him. And an unbeliever, no matter how hard he tries, can never on his own love Christ and obey Him. It takes a sovereign work of grace to open his blinded eyes. So no one who goes on in sin has ever seen him. But John adds in verse 6, no one who who sins has seen him or knows him. Or knows him. What does it mean to know Christ? What does it mean to know him? It means to be saved. It means to be saved. It means to be in a saving relationship with Christ by faith. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what it is to know Christ. To be in a saving relationship with Him through faith. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who says they're saved is saved. Not everyone who thinks they're going to heaven is going to get there. In fact, Jesus said, few will find it. Few will find the way to life. So He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to heaven. And then in verse 23, what does He say to those false converts? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. That is the reality of a false convert. He professes Christ, does not possess Christ, he does not know Christ, and he'll hear hear those dreadful words, depart from me, just before he's cast into hell. So anyone who professes to be a Christian, while living in lawlessness, while living in sin, has never known Christ. Does not know Him savingly. So true Christians cannot live in sin because... They're in a saving relationship with a sinless Savior, and that changes their relationship to sin. So brothers and sisters, what about you this morning? What about you this morning? Do you know Christ? Have you seen His glory in the Gospel? Has He become precious to your heart? Do you delight in Him? Do you love Him? Or are you still indifferent to Him? Has your life changed? If If your love for Christ doesn't deter you from sin, you don't love Him and you do not know Him. True, saving knowledge of Christ changes our relationship to sin. Can you say with Paul, oh, everything is rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Can you say that? Have you come to know Him? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. So John wrote the book, by the way, that we might have this fellowship with the Father and the Son, and that we might know that we have this fellowship. We might know it. And you can know that you have fellowship with God because you no longer continue in sin. Those who do have never seen Him or known Him. True believers cannot live in sin because thirdly, it is contrary to our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Now, one more. One more. A fourth and final reason that true Christians cannot live in sin, is that sin is contrary to our nature in Christ. Sin is contrary to our nature in Christ. Look at verse 7. 
little children, make sure no one deceives you. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Once again, John uses this term, little children. It's a term of love, a term of endearment. John, out of his love for his flock, is about to issue a very sober warning to them. He says, make sure no one deceives you. The word deceives there, again, it's that Greek word planao. Planao, it's the root of our English word planet. It means to wonder or to stray. That's what the planets do. They wander around in space. So false teachers try to trick believers and cause them to wander away from the truth, to stray from the truth. John says, don't let these heretics, or anyone for that matter, bewitch you, seduce you, and trick you so as to wander away from the truth. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone trick you into thinking you can live in sin and yet still have assurance that you know Christ. Don't let anyone trick you into believing that. He says, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You got that? The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Isn't it foolish to say, I'm right with God, I'm righteous, while living in unrighteousness? What a contradiction. What an utter insanity to make such a profession. John says, don't let anyone trick you. Scripture has much to say about deception, by the way. You don't want to live your life as a gullible Christian, saying, oh, everybody means well, everybody's heart is good and gold, and everybody who professes to love Christ is telling me the truth. That is not the case. That is a sure way to become deceived. John says, be on your guard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives a very similar warning. Listen to what he says there, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's an obvious statement. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that you cannot live in unrighteousness and sin and yet go to heaven? You can't do that. Now the lie of easy believism today says, oh sure you can. Everyone's a Christian. Everyone's professing Christ, living in sin, but it's okay. But Paul says, don't be deceived. He says, do not be deceived. Why would he have to say that? Because just as in Paul's day, so it was in John's day, so it is in our day. People are easily deceived into believing they can live unrighteously and yet go to heaven. Friends, I love you. Listen to this very carefully. If you're here today and you're living in habitual unrighteousness and sin, then you are not in the kingdom now and you will not get into the kingdom hereafter unless you repent and believe the gospel. I love you too much to lie to you, and so does John. So don't be deceived, he says. Then he goes on and says this. 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, effeminate soft, people who transgenders, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by the habitual practice of these things, you are not a Christian. You are not headed for the kingdom of heaven. James puts it this way, James chapter 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, if you profess to believe the Word, but you do not obey the Word and you think you're saved, you are self-deluded. You are self-deceived. So in the same way here in chapter 3, John says, make sure no one deceives you, The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I've told you before that salvation encompasses many glorious realities. Many glorious realities. There's regeneration where God gives us a new heart and gives us His own righteous nature. There's justification. That's the act of God whereby He declares the sinner righteous, innocent, and forgives him of his sin because Christ died for us. There, then there's sanctification. 
where the believer, by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, is becoming more righteous in his actual behavior and conduct. So John is saying this. The evidence that you're right with God is that you do that which is right. The evidence that you are righteous inwardly because of the new birth, the evidence that you're righteous positionally before God in justification is that you're becoming righteous progressively and actually in your sanctification. So sanctification is the evidence of regeneration and justification. Holiness is the evidence that someone has truly been saved. So John says, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can live unrighteously and yet be right with God. Now notice that John's not, again, we have to make this distinction. John is not saying that we become right with God by doing that which is right. That's legalism. That's legalism. John is saying that we know that we are right with God because we do what is right. It's all the difference in the world. Let me give you an illustration. Legalism is like this. It's like a man comes to an orphanage and there's a young boy there and he hears that a man is there looking to adopt a kid. And he's yeah, great. So he goes outdoors and he washes the man's car in hopes that the man picks him. He tries to earn the man's favor by doing a good work toward the man. That's legalism. That's a person trying to earn the favor of God by what he does. Biblical Christianity is like this. The man comes to the orphanage, graciously adopts the boy because he loves the boy, and the boy then, out of love for his new adopted father, washes his car as a sign of love. That's what a Christian does. A Christian does good works, practices righteousness, because he loves God, because God has given him his own righteous nature. So it's not that we become righteous, but we show ourselves to be righteous by practicing righteousness. So the one who practices righteousness is the one who is of God. We're righteous like He is, he says. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. Christ, at salvation, gives us His own nature. We become partakers of His nature and we manifest that nature through righteousness. John gives us the flip side in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Righteousness marks God's children. Sin marks the devil's children. Satan has sinned from the beginning. Shortly after his creation, he rebelled. He's the one that originated rebellion against God. He's the one that instigated man's rebellion against God in the garden. That's who Satan is. Satan is a rebel. Satan is a sinner. That's his nature. And so unbelievers imitate their father. Those who live in sin give evidence they possess his nature. Put it very simply, if you live like the devil, it's because you belong to the devil. Simple as that. If you live like Satan, you belong to Satan. So it's an issue of who is your spiritual father. One commentator put it this way, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? That'll be evidenced by the way you live your life. If your life is marked by sin, you belong to Satan. What does Jesus say in John 8? He says, you're of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father? When he lies, Jesus says, when Satan lies, he just speaks from his own nature. That's the point. That's the point. Whoever your father is, That's who you'll imitate because you possess your father's nature. Just as any true child possesses the genes of his parents, so spiritually we possess the nature of our spiritual father. So that's the issue. Unbelievers show they have the devil's nature by doing his deeds. Of course, the end of verse 8 says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy those works So if you're a true believer, you can't live in those works anymore because those works of sin have been destroyed in your life. You're no longer held captive by Satan. And since the works of the devil are destroyed in your life, they cannot dominate you anymore. That's why he says in verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. No one who is born of God practices sin. 
Why? Because his seed abides in him. That's strange language, isn't it? God's seed abides in the believer. What does that mean? What does that mean? Let me see if I can help you here. The word is sperma. The word seed there, sperma. It's a word that can be used agriculturally to be referred to real seeds planted that produce crops. But often in Scripture it refers to descendants. But listen to how Scripture defines this seed. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The seed that God uses to produce new life in His people is the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of God abides in us. It remains in us. And the Word of God is made effectual by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit abides in us, and the result of this, the result of the Spirit and the Word doing its work in our heart is a new nature. A new nature. 2 Peter 1.4 puts it this way, we have become partakers of the divine nature. We have become partakers of the divine nature. Does that mean we're little gods? No. That means that God's righteous character is planted within us at conversion. And that obviously will manifest itself in righteousness. Righteousness. So the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, has granted the life of God to the child of God. You possess the life of God if you're a believer. His nature has been granted to you. And therefore, He cannot sin, verse 9 says, because He is born of God. True believers cannot go on living in sin as the habitual course of their life because they have a new nature from God and that new nature manifests itself in righteousness. Righteousness. John brings this all to a conclusion in verse 10. He says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. The distinction could not be any clearer, could it? For John, it's clear. For John, it's clear. The evidence of true Christianity is righteousness. That's the mark of a true believer. True Christians experience increasing victory over sin. They experience decreasing sin and increasing righteousness because they are born of God. And at the very end, John adds nor the one who does not love his brother. The one who does, not, who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And with that, John transitions to the social test, the test of love, and we'll look at that next week in verses 11 through 18. But for now to close and to sum up, true Christians cannot live in sin because sin is contrary to the law of Christ, it is contrary to the work of Christ. It is contrary to our union with Christ. And it is contrary to our nature in Christ. And therefore, a true Christian cannot live in sin. And in light of that, brothers and sisters, we must examine ourselves. Are you a true believer? Are you a child of God? What is it that marks your life? If your life is dominated by habitual sin then today you need to genuinely repent and believe the Gospel. You need to surrender to Christ in true faith and call on Him to save you because you are not truly in Him if you go on living in sin. And if you would like to talk about that after the service, if you need help or counsel with regard to the condition of your soul, I would be glad to do that. Please come speak with me after the service. But if your life is marked by righteousness, increasing righteousness, then praise God, you can have confidence and assurance that you are a true believer. So what do we do? Examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Pursue righteousness. And then, this is a wonderful passage to use in your own outreach, your own evangelism. All of us know people, right, that profess to be Christians, but we can see their life and say, yeah, I don't think that's the case. 
Here's a good passage to take your friend through, your family member through. Take him to this passage and just say something like this. I've done this on the streets before. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to 1 John 3. What is it that characterizes your life? Is it sin or righteousness? And a lot of times they'll admit it. Yeah, sin. And then have them read this passage. He who practices righteousness is of God. He who practices sin is of the devil. According to this verse, are you of God or of the devil? And a lot of times they will admit it. I've had people weep on the streets and say, I'm of the devil. And then you can say, friend, then you need to come to Christ for real. You need to repent and believe. It's a wonderful springboard to explain the true gospel and true conversion. And we need to do that because we love people. We care about the purity and unity of Christ's church and the salvation of sinners. So we can use this passage in evangelism. So may we do that. May we pursue righteousness and assurance through obedience to the law of God for our good and for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we know that Your Word is so clear on these issues. There is no ambiguity here. There is no lack of clarity here. This is unequivocal, crystal clear, unambiguous. Anyone who lives in sin is not a believer. That's a matter-of-fact statement. Lord, we're thankful that sin has been destroyed in our lives. Not only the penalty, not only has Christ died for us, not only did He bear the wrath of God for us, the curse of the law for us, but He also destroyed the dominion of sin in our life. He gives us His own nature by the work of the Spirit. Your seed abides in us. That is amazing. We cannot sin. We cannot go on habitually in sin because Your seed remains in us. You keep us from sin. The world lies in the power of the evil one, but we lie safely in the hands of our God. And we give thanks to You for that great salvation, Lord. I know that John's original intent in writing this was not negative. His goal was not to cause the believers of Asia Minor to necessarily doubt their salvation, but to affirm their salvation up against the lies of the heretics. But Lord, we know that there are people in every church. We would be foolish to think that everyone in our churches are saved. And so for those who may be here this morning that aren't really in Christ, I pray that You would awaken them, alarm them. Oh, that they would see their dreadful condition before a holy God and their need to come in real saving faith to Christ, total surrender to Christ, with a resolve to turn from a life of rebellion and to follow Him all the days of their life. And for us who know Christ, I pray that this passage is reaffirming, reassuring as we look at our lives and see that indeed the Spirit has accomplished a work of grace. Indeed our life is marked by increasing righteousness and obedience. And therefore indeed we do belong to You. So Lord, would You please strengthen the assurance of Your people, build up Your church, and glorify Your name we pray. Amen. All right. If you-